Welcome back to the Tell It Like It Is podcast, where leading female founders, industry trailblazers, and all-around badass women tell it like it really is. I'm your host, Cassandra Ray. Today's guest is an advertising executive turned ethical entrepreneur with a passion for inclusive beauty and all-natural products. Count me in. After a 25-year career in advertising, which culminated in CEO of J. Walter Thompson, New York, during the height of their B2 scandal, no less, she decided to, as she puts it, take back control. She's now a founder twice over. In 2018, she co-founded HMS Beagle, a boutique consulting firm that helps brands navigate the journey to survival. And less than a year after that, she co-founded Masami, a Japanese-inspired, sustainable, and inclusive hair and beauty brand, where she is now also CEO. Lynn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And that was quite an intro. Well, I want to jump right into Masami. I was super excited to talk to you because it's so rare that you see really any company, but particularly a startup, which is just focused on getting off the ground, that is so completely aligned on all of its values. I mean, sustainable, giving back to the communities in its value chain, inclusive by design, the design of the product, but also design of the team. Um, and something I really feel strongly about, but I feel like we just don't talk enough about, which is also respectful to your customers. You know, you're not trying to sell a million different products, just a few really great ones, which to me in and of itself is a more sustainable approach to consumerism. Was all of that intentional or did it just fall into place? You know, this is where my my marketing background is super helpful because um, I wanted to make sure that we had all of our brand story, brand values, all of that stuff squared away from the get-go. And you had mentioned, you know, I'd launched a brand consultancy right when I left JWT and I was working almost exclusively with startups. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is that most of them don't have any idea what their brand is. <laughs> so, um, you know, they would launch a product, they'd be in love with the product. But um, a lot of times, you know, I would come in to help them because they realized they didn't clearly articulate what it is they actually do. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the, the holistic brand story was super muddled um, from the iconography and the logo and the values. Like they hadn't actually thought about the values. And for me, that's the starting point because if you don't know who you are, it's really difficult to plan out your innovation pipeline. It's difficult to find people who can jump on board with your mission if they don't know what the mission is. You know what I mean? So it's like, for me, that informs everything. It informs who you hire. It informs how you behave. It informs the decisions you make in terms of which partnerships are good ones or not good ones, you know? And I also felt like a lot of beauty brands don't really have a clear mission um, or purpose other than beauty. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, and I come from a world where that's really important actually for brands. And I've worked with a lot of of companies like J and J that, you know, that, that do a lot of that. So I just felt that was another piece, like, let's not wait till down the road and then figure out what we care about. Let's build it in from the get go. And it just gives us that North star. So that's why we also set up the Masami Institute right when we launched, which was all about helping to rebalance the ocean ecosystem in Northeast Japan and hopefully beyond Northeast Japan. But right now as a startup, that's all we can afford. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, 
are all of the things that you're doing in every one of those spheres, because each one takes, you know, effort and intention and resources, whether they're their time or money. Are they all easy decisions every time you make them? Or are you sometimes feeling like you're making a trade-off between, you know, your path to profitability potentially and staying true to these values? Um, there definitely are always trade-offs, but they're not hard trade-offs for me. And this is this is also just reinforcement of when you have your brand really solid, the decisions aren't really difficult because, for example, we decided, we launched in plastic bottles, which I've always hated because plastic is not good for the ocean, not good for the earth. Um, but it's hard to do when you're in the shower. Um, you're limited in terms of your materials you can you can choose from. So we've been working for the last year on creating a refillable, sustainable bottle, which we're launching. Is it uh, economically the you know the best thing that we could be doing? No, it's expensive, <laughs> but um, I want to make sure that that is an option. And you know, if we can start to change behavior, consumer behavior, to get people used to this idea of like you could buy something beautiful that sits in your shower that can be there forever. Um, and buy some refills to fill it. And isn't that a much better option? But it's, it's interesting because I think it's coming more from us than it is from the consumers for sure. Mm. Like people, we don't have, we don't have any language. We don't have any education for that. And there's, there's so little, so few options actually. Yeah. And, um, when we launched it, I thought people would be more excited. And I mean, it's, it's not made yet. So, so technically it's pre-launch. So maybe that's part of it is people can't see it and feel it. And, you know, but, um, nobody, nobody's really been asking us for, for different packaging or, you know, so we're doing that on our own just because we feel like we should. Um, and I'm going to keep looking for better options. I mean, we've been talking to TerraCycle. I think they're, unfortunately for us, we're so small that we can't really afford their, uh, their fees right now. But at some point, um, you know, that I'm sure there are actually competitors to TerraCycle. If anyone knows any, <laughs> hit me up. Um, touch, yeah. But like, you know, just trying to find different materials um, that can be used that make our products even more recyclable, more sustainable, that kind of thing. Um, and it is tricky because, you know, we've got products that um, there's basically liquid inside, which can deteriorate. And what we also don't want is plastic to leach into our product and create a more toxic product than we have, which is a super non-toxic product. So, you know, when you think about some of the ocean recovery uh, plastic, some of that is so uh, degraded that it actually is like toxic. And that's good because I think it'll hopefully force the rest of the industry to to make some changes as well. Mm. I want to pull on this thread as well of um, just not having a million SKUs to sell. Um, I feel like the beauty, maybe the beauty industry isn't the only industry that does this, but I'm really present to it in beauty because I feel like every year, particularly in makeup actually more than hair, but every year there's a new product, a new makeup product that didn't exist before, but that must become part of your routine now. Like, when did we start needing primer, like moisturizer and primer and foundation and then a setting spray? And then also now we need a separate primer for our eyelids. I feel like there's just like a million, million things to buy. And I often wonder, like, how is it that I was able to put on my 
um, my eyeshadow five years ago without a separate primer for my eyelids. Yeah, but I know, now right? it would be like heresy, right? Um, and I, I know that you have designed your line to be simple and, you know, the products work for all hair types and every type of hair. Um, and was, was that, was that an intention to just make it more simple for people to understand or was that an intentional design for sustainability? Um, it was, it was definitely more, um, just, tapping into this ethos of the world is too complicated and we need to simplify things, which is very Japanese, by the way, Mm. very sort of a Zen approach to things. But it was also a reaction to me being actually in a, 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 uh, an offender um, to what you're talking about. Because when I worked in marketing and advertising, I worked on brands where they would grow their, their um, shelf space by um, launching more SKUs. And a lot of times it's, most of the time, I would say it's not doing it for the consumer. Um, it has nothing to do with the consumer because the consumer doesn't want to choose between which shampoo is for um, shiny hair, which is for color treated hair, which is for volume, which is for moisture. You kind of want all of that. And I used to get so frustrated because I have very thin colored hair. I, uh, you know, I highlight my hair and um, I would always be standing there at the shelf being like, okay, do I get the color treated one, but then I'm not going to have like the volume or do I get, you know, (laughs) and And you're like, can I just get one that says like, make your hair look good. Right. That's what I want. Yeah. So when we created our products, we decided we're going to focus on hydration. Hydration is the number one unmet need in hair care. And if you solve that, you solve a lot of the other problems people have. Your hair is shinier, it's healthier, it's stronger um, because there's less breakage. Um, It tends to give you more volume, but not in a frizzy way, you know. So it's sort of it kind of, and it's safe for color treated hair. So you kind of get all all that in one. And so that was our philosophy: is like we're not going to introduce another shampoo. This is not like oh, this year this is the you know the launch shampoo, and then next year there's going to be the version two dot That's a different shampoo for different you know. It's like no, you really just need this, <laughs> and it works for virtually everybody. And I say virtually because of course we tried to test it on every hair type we could imagine, and we did. There are always going to be people who are not satisfied and don't find the product you know working for them, but. I would say somewhere between 80 and 85% of the people that try our product really like it. And of those, we have about 20% loyalty of hardcore, like we'll never use any other product again kind of people. Men are a big part of our brand as well. And we have right now, I mean, we're only, you know, five months into launch, but about 40% of our purchasers are men, which I was kind of surprised by. So am I right in, um, in thinking that in the product, um, itself, you met the European standard, not just the American standard? Yeah. The European standards, the EU standards are much stricter than the, than the U S the U S is kind of a joke. Um, there are very few banned ingredients here. So we decided with our chemists that we wanted to follow EU standards um, it's really tricky because there's really no definition of what clean beauty is. And, you know, there's a retailer here in the U.S. you may have heard of called Credo. They're kind of a clean beauty 
expert, they've got their own list of what's, you know, their dirty ingredients are. And then you go to Sephora and they have their own list of what dirty ingredients are. And then you go to other retailers and they have their own list. And there's a lot of ingredients that nobody agrees on. Um, and literally, if you had to take all of those out of your product, you'd be left with like, like two ingredients. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so we just decided to navigate it because it's tricky. We're going to follow EU, which is much more on top of what's um, good, what's bad. You know, they've got their sort of watch list. Our chemist is all over it. And that just makes things a little bit simple for us. But we wanted to for sure, not have the, 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 there's some really obvious ones you don't want in your products. If you're, if you're formulating beauty, which is, you know, you don't want sulfates, you don't want parabens, you don't want phthalates. When you were, um, at JWT, were you, you know, dreaming of a beauty brand? Were you thinking this is, this is my life's calling? How did you end up getting involved in this? You know, I really wasn't. Um, but I will say throughout my career, I've always kind of gravitated back to working on beauty because I've worked on a lot of it um, and I've always enjoyed it. And I've worked on a lot of hair brands, interestingly enough, because I did L'Oreal. I did um, worked on all their hair color and their hair care. And then I worked on Nexus. Um, but then I've also done like Vichy and Clinique and some other great brands. So I think the beauty of working in advertising as long as I did is you get to work on everything. You know, you just, mm. you, it's, it's, it's really an industry well-suited for, learning lots of different businesses, which I really enjoyed. But anyway, so no, I was not thinking I was going to do this, but it's like serendipity. And sometimes the universe just throws something your way and you're like, yes. And that's what happened. My, I met my business partner, James, through my husband, actually, because James had been working for him um, at an ad agency as a producer, because that's what he used to do at Clairol. And and I was super skeptical that James had figured out how to make these clean formulas because my husband basically said, yeah, it's a side project. He's been working on it. He spent all of his discretionary income basically on making these formulations for like 10 years. <laughs> um, and I think his husband was kind of at the point where it's like, okay, James, like you're going to make these things or forget it. Like we're done. Like, we know? had to buy a house with this money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah. stop, like. In, and, you know, it's rare, in my opinion, it's rare to meet somebody who's so, I, I'm going to say obsessed, although that sounds a little, it, it doesn't, I don't mean it to sound negative, but he's literally been obsessed about creating these products for so long mm. and to do it for so long and to have the energy to sustain it for so long. Like, I don't really mm. know anybody who would do that for 10 years. So anyway. I think we so call was, that a calling. Yeah, it really is. So I was mm. kind of like, wow, that's, wow. <laughs> you know, like that's really interesting. But I was super skeptical because, you know, how can one guy figure this out, you know, kind of on his own? I mean, yes, he's a chemist, but I just was like, mm, this just doesn't sound like it's going to be anything interesting. But then when I met him and I met his husband and they told me the story of, you know, they would go to Japan, which is where Masa is from um, Northeast Japan. And that's where James found this ingredient and he just kept going, you know? Um, and then he gave me products to try and I was really blown away. Um, and that was when I was like, oh, shit, you know, we're gonna have to do this. Um, so yeah, we decided to partner together and really make this thing happen. I mean, when James and I met, he had formulations that were 
you know, 80, 85% done, but we wanted to get them even cleaner. He didn't have a brand name. He didn't have any, you know, any of the other strategy work or, you know, packaging or anything like that done. So, you know, that's what I do. So um, we figured all that out, um, which takes time. Um, And then we just launched in February. Given that he'd been working on this for 10 years, had spent all of this money, this discretionary income, as you, as you put it, on the product before you came on board. How did you approach conversations around money and ownership when you first came on board? Yeah, so that's always the tricky part, right? Well, we knew when we met that we had just, we just hit it off, you know, and there's certain people that you do that with. I mean, I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, yeah. you, know, you just meet them and feel like you've known them forever. So James and I got along like a house on fire, which was fantastic. Um, and we also knew, and this was a really beneficial thing. And also for anyone else who's looking to find a co-founder, it's always advice I give, find somebody that is complimentary to you, not a clone of you. <laughs> um, and that has been tremendously helpful as well, because James knows a lot about it's as if he is a stylist, although he's not by trade, but he knows a lot about hair and formulations and chemistry because he's done so much research over literally the last decade. And like I said, my strength is the branding, the marketing, the business, the go-to-market strategy. So when we talked about forming this partnership, he basically said, okay, this is what I've put in over the last decade. Um, And we said, okay, my husband and I said, we're going to put in X and we figured out, you know, how to, how to kind of, you know, figure out the equity of the company that way. Um, and we're all happy and it worked out great. Um, so, um, that's often a sticking point though, I feel like. So getting those conversations up front and being really transparent is so critical. Um, one of the things James was worried about was he had tried to do this years before with a different product and had a partner that it just didn't work out. And basically the thing kind of collapsed. And so, you know, he, he was concerned that like we would just take over and kick him out, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And so, you know, there are ways you can deal with that when we set up our operating agreement and we set up our contracts and stuff, you know, it was like, we put clause in there that says, you know, James, um, basically, you know, has a guarantee for X amount of years and that, that worked out brilliantly. So, um, yeah, now, now we're just full steam ahead on just building our momentum and scaling the business. Have you always been comfortable having those kind of upfront, transparent conversations about money? You know, I, I, it was one of the things I learned in my job, especially when I was running agencies, whether it was when I was president of Arnold or, or CEO of JWT New York, is um, it's always better to be upfront and clear and direct and not emotional, just sort of this is the way it is, um, whether it's negotiating with a client or whatever. Um, and I would say I was not always that way. You know, earlier in my career, I, I, really wasn't thinking about that. But, uh, you know, I found out that it's so much easier. It makes your life so much easier if you can 
do it from the beginning. Um, so when I was at JWT and we would onboard a client, I would often onboard not just sort of the business side, but also, yeah, talk about any of the sticky financial stuff up front, um, talk about the values up front, talk about the types of people, you know, on the business and just get it out of the way. Are you familiar with um, Diane Morales? She's one of the Democratic um, candidates for New York City mayor. So it's, obviously, it's in the primary right now. I mean, I, I am, but not like deeply. I have not been following her her at all. Do you, do you have any? I mean, nor have I, to be perfectly honest, because I am in London and I don't vote yeah. in New York. But um, um, somebody that I spoke with here on the podcast, um, Evan Sargent, she did a, a branding project with for the campaign. And she told me that watching these three women who were on the pro- uh, project, um, Diane commented about how each one took on a leadership role for a time. Um, it was, it was, I think over a week. So it was a kind of a sprint that they did together. Um, and then just naturally took a step back and then another person would come and take the lead. And it was like this, really this co-creative co truly co-led process without any of the kind of ego battles that you often see or territorial battles. And, um, and when we, we actually, I was quite moved by that part of the interview with Evan because I thought we never, we never hear examples of that, right? Well, like the thing we're always meant to aspire to is to lead, you be the sole leader of everything. Even our, you know, the CEO model is one person at the top, everybody kind of beneath you. And when we uh, clipped that part of the interview, we put it on the socials, Diane Morales retweeted it. And I, what I thought was really interesting is that she talked about it in terms of feminine leadership. And she said, women just lead differently than men and we're more comfortable at sharing our power. And I had never really thought about it that way. But when I was doing research for my interview with you, something really stood out to me on your LinkedIn profile, which I know is really basic. But underneath your role as um, CEO at JWT, you have, I'm just going to read it out here if if that's all right, if that's okay with you, Lynn. So it says Lynn partnered with uh, Brent Chui, 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 yeah. um, Chui uh, in uh, the New York C- CCO and Matt Baker, New York head of planning, to lead the agency's flagship New York office. Together, they were responsible for driving pioneering creative work and thinking and the overall strategic direction and growth of the New York office. I mean, that really stood out to me because, first of all, I mean, you're your LinkedIn profile is sort of like, it's a brag sheet for yourself, right? For most people. And the fact that you took, had the, had the, even the thought and then wrote this piece that said, I had a role and I did it with two other people by my side in these, in these co-leading roles, plus a team, a team of other people beneath us really stood out to me as probably reflective of the way that you lead in general. Would you say that's true? Yeah. I mean, I've never been a, an egotistical leader. In fact, I've always been a little uncomfortable being in that that position, probably because I'm an introvert at heart, which people always say to me, no, you're not. I'm like, yes, I really am. I swear I am. Um, but I, you know, I just feel like there's no way you can do it on your own. It's ridiculous to think that. And in the case of JWT, it's such a massive organization. I mean, it's ridiculous. 
Um, and, and, you know, so, so my creative partner and my strategy partner were critical. Um, so yeah, I just always, um, and even now I feel like, like there are a lot of founders or people that want to like figure everything out for themselves. Like they want to control everything, right? Like every facet of the business. And if you wait until you have enough knowledge to know every facet of the business, you're never going to go anywhere. Like you're going to get stuck. And you don't think, I think women do that actually a lot. I think we don't put ourselves forward for the next role because we think, well, I don't, I don't know it a hundred percent. So let me stay in my box. Yeah. And it's, it drives me mad because now I realize it's actually much better if you, you don't have to know everything. I mean, I, I probably know just enough to be dangerous. Right. Um, but I don't know, like, like finance is not my jam. So, uh, I brought in a really great CFO and let him do his thing. You know what I mean? Cause that's yeah. not my thing. Um, and I think you just have to be more self-aware of what stuff you really like to do and what you're good at and what stuff you're not. And then if there's stuff that you're not good at or you don't like to do, or it's just not your skill set, don't sweat it. You know, don't think like, Oh my God, I can't do the job because I don't like finance. It's like, no, you can do all the rest of the job and find a great partner <laughs> to help you with that part of the job. I mean, I think because while well, you were at JWT, when the Gustavo Martinez scandal, if, if you can call it, that happened, I have to ask you about the Me Too movement. But I don't want to ask you about what happened at JWT because I think you've probably been asked about that a million times and, mm-hmm. and you know we all know about that. But I feel like this moment with Me Too is long overdue. Like a lot of women, I'm really happy... It, we're starting to talk about things. We're starting to normalize this. I think a lot of women feel less alone. It's been a very affirming time. I also feel like we have potentially glossed over a really important aspect, which is what exactly is a Me Too moment? You know, is it is it sexual assault? Is that what counts as Me Too? Is it sexual harassment? Um, can it just be an off color remark? You know, what is it? So I wanted to pose that question to you because I'm not sure we as a society have decided on that yet. I mean, what do you think constitutes a Me Too moment? Man, that is a tough question. And actually, I've never thought of that really. I mean, I have sort I've, you know, not as clearly as you articulated it. Um, and certainly the case with Gustavo, there was a lot of gray area there, right? Um, there were some of the things that were in the accusations that, you know, under the investigation were shown to not be exactly as they seemed. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, I feel like anything that holds women back, um, intentionally is like a me too thing, because whether it's, you know, um, the pay gap. I mean, I still get infuriated at, at that, you know, that women make so much less than men doing the same jobs. I mean, it's that, particularly pervasive in advertising, which it is, is very pervasive yeah. in advertising. And it's just, it's just insane. So, you know, you could, you could kind of look at all the different ways that women are held back. And to me, those are all part of this push for equality, really. And yes, sexual harassment is certainly part of it. I mean, I do think that's one of the 
great things about what's been happening is I think a lot of that behavior is now not okay. So, yeah. so anyway, so, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, every single study that studies the business results and diversity, it pretty much by any metrics, diversity on boards, diversity on teams, diversity in senior leadership, gender diversity, racial diversity, diversity of social class, they all point to quantifiable, measurable, cold, hard cash results. You get better results when your teams are more diverse. But we're still really lagging the kind of diversity that we need across a lot of industries. But I think you know, particularly, well, one of the particularly bad ones is, uh, among the many, is advertising. Um, you know, the reputation is, is male, pale and stale. Right. Yep. And, um, I think, I think if I've read, uh, less than 3% of creative directors are, are women and there's even fewer than that, that, uh, women or men that are, um, of color. Um, when the evidence is so clear, why are we still so bad? I know. Right. Um, I mean, I, I do think that, so the 3% stat is, is really reflective of the 3% conference, which Kat Gordon set up to really address this issue. She was a creative and I think felt like this is ridiculous. Um, so the 3% conference is about make, making that change. I do think the number's gone up, but not to where it needs to be, of course. Um, mm. But it's not 3% anymore, which is at least shows progress. Yeah. I think the challenge is, when you're in like what I would call a system and now advertising is really corporate, people think it's creative, but it's run by finance, finance companies. I mean, WPP is, is a finance company essentially. And so you're in the system and the system promotes status quo because it's all about like, well, this person just quit and we have to replace them. Well, let's find somebody like them. Do you know what I mean? As opposed mm-hmm. to saying, let's look out of the box and find somebody who might not have worked on razor blades before, you know, or cars <laughs> or whatever it is, yeah. finance. And let's find somebody who, you know, maybe can bring a different perspective. And it's very, agencies are very reluctant to do that because I think, you know, it's a service business. They feel like clients want people with that experience and I've always pushed back on that. I've always said, you know what, I don't agree. I actually think fresh perspectives are more valuable. Plus, and a lot of times when you're doing a team and you're putting it together, you've got a couple people on the team already that have category experience. You don't need to overload the team with that. Um, mm. But it's. But I would say I, I'm I'm an exception for sure. Um, it's just easier when the HR person is looking to fill the role to just look at the job spec from last time and cut and paste it for this time. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And so it you think pro- there's also like a, a, we hire a person just like them, but also hire a person just like us. Oh yeah. Because, you know, it used to be that people would go, Oh, they went to the same school I went to. Great. You know, like, and you get like an instant sort of thumbs up. And I always thought that was ridiculous too, because like, I've never put much stock in like what school is good or bad because think about it. Like I went to Indiana. It's a perfectly fine school, but like, when I hear people saying like, oh, you know, I wouldn't hire somebody from this school or I would only, it's like, you got to be kidding me. There are good students and bad students at every single school. 
Totally. Do you know what I mean? It really doesn't yeah. matter. And also, those are such formative years. I mean, I, I went to school for criminal justice in English. It had nothing to do with advertising. I didn't study advertising. So, you know, um, I, I think that's one of those things that I'm, I am seeing a shift in mindset of hiring that people are, not, are much less focused on the education piece, at least in advertising, which I think will open up more opportunities as well. Um, but I think part of it is the HR team's responsibility and the, and the leaders on the businesses to say, we demand seeing candidates of color. We demand seeing women. We're not going to hire for this role until we see an adequate number of candidates that fit, you know, diverse specs, um, and just kind of force the issue. And, you know, you may end up hiring the, male, pale, and stale, as you said. But if you've really vetted the candidates and that's really the only option and it's the best option, then so be it. But um, I think if you have a much wider um, swath to choose from, chances are you're going to be able to hire some of those other people and um, and really shake things up a little bit more. But it's it kind of like it's a systemic thing. Um so it needs it needs pressure from all sides, you know. It needs pressure from the top. It needs pressure from the business leads. It needs pressure from the HR teams. It needs pressure from finance. And then people have to be willing to go back to the client and say, like, look, the search is going to take a few extra weeks, and here's why. Right. And I would be shocked if a client had a problem with that. Do you know what I mean? Like, really, yeah. you don't want us to yeah. look at diverse candidates. You just want to hire the first person we find. Yeah, I, I don't think any client could could say that with a straight face these days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in an industry where there are so few women who make it to the top or even, frankly, close to the top, why do you think you did? Um, I think it's because I was willing to leave if I felt like I was being stifled and go somewhere else and look for better opportunities. Um, and that's really the only way you can get ahead in the business. Um, if you don't feel that your current company is valuing you or going to promote you, don't stay. Okay. So I want to, I want to wrap up, um, with a few quick ish fire questions. These can go fast or slow actually, but, um, but I like to ask. So what's one lesson you learned the hard way? Never get a perm. I'm sorry, but I was looking at pictures with my high school friends and I was horrified. Not good. Oh, remember when perms were the rage though? Oh, oh my God. And okay, I in all fairness, I was not the only one. We all had this horrible hair, but it like fried my hair permanently, I feel like perm, you know? But, yeah. Um, oh God, yeah. Wish I never did that. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? Ooh, that's a hard one. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, very conservative household. Um, and I wouldn't say it's so much an opinion as more of just what I knew. I just didn't really fully understand and appreciate like diversity the way that now living in New York City, it's a completely different perspective. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I grew up in a very Republican household and they still are. And I just can't sign on for most of that, you know? And it's one of those things where like, I don't even talk to my family about politics because it never goes well. I mean, they all voted for Trump. And the rationale, and and by the way, Hillary Clinton went to my high school. Wow. Okay. But yet in my town, everyone hates Hillary. In the town I grew up in, I'm saying. And, um, And I did too back then because you buy into this whole like group think about like, you know, and then I think I, I, I've, I've certainly become much more evolved about, about sort of um, thinking about politics and, and, and where I really want to cast my vote. But it's, it was tough. When Trump was elected, I asked my parents, like, why did you do that? And their <laughs> response that they gave me was, we can't afford to vote for, for Hillary. We are getting squeezed. We are in the, you know, the the middle class squeeze and um, and they bought into the whole like make America great again. Oh my god, it's so, so sad. I mean, yeah. Okay. Um what's been your worst or maybe funniest experience of mansplaining? Okay, so I have a really good mansplaining story. So when I first started at BBDO um, I was working on the Tampax tampon account and there were only a couple other women on the account and it was almost all men. All the, all the higher ups were men. The top clients were men. And I had my boss, <laughs> a man, um, come to me really excited one day. Um, and by the way, the account had gone up for review like the day that I started there. So it was all hands on deck trying to like save this account, right? So he comes to me super excited one day and he goes, I have a product idea that the client is going to love. I need you to help me write it up. And I'm like, okay, what's your idea? He's like, I think we need to make a tampon attached to a pad. And I was like, (laughs) what? And he was like explaining to me why this was such a good idea, right? And I was like, do you know female anatomy? Like that is a terrible idea. And he's like, but I don't understand. That would be like the perfect product. Oh my God. I, I basically why, said I to him no. I don't understand. Like, why did he think it was a good product? Like, what was his rationale? I think he felt like, well, I'm listening to these focus groups and a lot of women use both tampons and pads or liners at the same time. Why don't we just make a product that's a two-in-one? Two-in-one. Uh, two-in-one. And I was literally mm-hmm. like, you have to be joking. Do not say that in the meeting. Do not bring it up to the client. Please. <laughs> like, this is no, you don't know what you're talking about. And he was sort of like, what? But it's such a good idea. I'm like, no. Now, fortunately, he stood down and I didn't have to like sit there and be humiliated while he pitched this idea. Um, but yeah, that was probably my big, that was my big man explaining. That was a bad one. That's, that's a good example. I think that's, that one's going to be in the top spot for a long time. What are you, what are you still insecure about? Um, I mean, like many women, I wish I weighed less, right? I mean, I cannot get rid of my baby belly (laughs) and I just, it just is, it just is what it is, but I try not to like, I'm not so insecure that I like really care 
But yeah, like if I see a picture of myself and I've got a double chin or I've got like, you know, a roll showing, I get annoyed. So I, I, I definitely have um, picture approval rights. Like with my husband, if he posts something on social that I've not approved, I'm not happy. How do you think your life would be different if you had made it into the FBI when you were a young woman? Oh my God, I would be like Clarice Starling. Um, <laughs> I think I would have really enjoyed it, but who knows? Um, I actually loved, you know, I loved my career because I love the idea of taking creativity and using it as a business tool. Bureaucracy, I'm sure. I mean, I'm not, I don't know. I don't have experience myself, but in general, big organizations, government organizations are not super innovative. Yeah, exactly. Um, how old are you now then? 53. 53. So if you could go back and tell your 33-year-old self anything, what would it be? I would say I should have negotiated and stood up for myself much more because I was always of the belief that like my work would speak for itself mm. and that I didn't have to say that I wanted to get promoted because it should be obvious, of course. But then, yeah. you know, I would see a guy getting promoted above me, or I would be sort of told, oh, the client really likes you. We can't move you right now. So I'm being penalized for doing a good job. Like, hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would have definitely been much more overt about saying what I want, demanding what I want and sticking up for myself, which took me years, years to do. Um, because when I finally did start asking for things, it was always a battle. Mm. Uh, you know, I came into JWT as co-managing director and I had to, it changed, my job changed the, the day before I was supposed to start. I was supposed to come in as managing director and then get promoted to be the CEO of the office. You know, it was this sort of like, well, we'll bring you in, make sure everything's going well. I should have just said, no, that's ridiculous. Like yeah. you wouldn't have done that to a guy. You would have just brought him in as the CEO from the get-go and said, I had to earn it. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? So, so do the job, we'll pay you less. And then once we know you can do the job, we'll, we'll promote you. Right. So I, mm -hmm. I, I, uh, yeah, it actually annoys me now that we're talking about it. <laughs> yeah. That would annoy me. It's deeply, deeply unfair, but what are you going right. to do? I mean, you said they did it the day before you're supposed to start. Yeah. They changed my job. Wow. They said, we're going to make you a co-managing director with someone else, but yes, you're still on the path to run the office, but I had to earn it. And I could have walked away. I should have walked away. I should have just said, you know what? That's not what I signed up for. It's not what we agreed. It's not what's in my letter. I'm not doing it. But, you know, I want to be a team player. It's yeah. like, I'm like, all right, you know, so you're telling me I'm still on the trajectory. Okay, great. Um, but I don't think they would have done that to a guy. If I asked you the same question, you know, 20 years from now, so if I asked you, we meet up and you're 73 years old, what do you think you'd want to tell your 53-year-old self? Probably to take some time to like have some time for myself and not work my ass off all the time. Cause I am, I am, a, a, I am motivated by being productive. That mm -hmm. is sort of what I like. And so I have a tendency to just not stop. What are you really fucking good at? My superpower is building great teams, high performing teams, I have a real knack for talent and for seeing potential in people. And I know I'm good at it because my husband's really bad at it. 
I can contrast that with he he's recommended like a dozen people to me over the last, I don't know, 25 years. And I've had to fire almost every single one of them. Really? Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. Cause he likes, you know, people value people for different reasons, right? Like Mm. he might like somebody because they're fun to hang out with, but they're not good at their job. Yeah. And I'm much more about like, I want people to, I want people to perform their best at whatever they do well. And I want to figure out what that is and help them figure out what it is and then unlock it in them and let them go. And that's what I'm good at. I'm good at saying like to people like, you know what, you're kind of in the wrong job or you're with the wrong people. Like we got to, we got to, you know, you're really good at project management, but you're in a role where you can't really do that. So we're going to change that up. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, it's, you can learn how people sometimes ask me, well, that's just something that you do naturally. Like, how do you learn to identify talent and be good at it? Well, a lot of it is just getting to know your people really well. What makes them tick? What motivates them? You know, some people are motivated by the stick. Other people are motivated by the carrot. Mm. Probably a lot more people are motivated by the carrot. But, you know, it's like figuring out some people need a lot of parameters and a lot of structure and other people don't do well with structure. So it's it's taking the time to understand those things so that you can make everybody be as good at their job as they could possibly be. And then together be really good, you know, so that you have a team where it's like, you might have five people, but they are performing like they're 25 people, you know? Yeah. And now that you're running your own thing, I mean, do you find that you have the same amount of time to dedicate to the the team that you're building now to make sure that they, they have that? Or is that more of a struggle than it might've been uh, when you're going to running somebody else's agency? Well, it's easy for me now because what I basically did is brought in all the best people I knew to work on my, on my business. You know, that's the benefit of being an older entrepreneur. I've got a big network of people. I know who's good at what. I know what I need. And I can really build a team. And it's all people I like. And they're all people I consider good friends. Mm. And that also makes things easier because I'm a big believer in blending work and life. I just don't believe in the balance thing. I think it's just mush it all together. And that's been one of the great things about what I'm doing now is there's very little divide and I like it. Um, it just makes it easier for me. And even with my kids, I mean, I drag my daughter to a, a beauty trade show in January and she sat wearing her little Masami t-shirt, you know, behind the booth and she was on her phone the whole time, but it didn't matter. It was like, she's hopefully picking up some things just by being there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Totally. I think I read in my research that was it that you were speaking to an investor and he didn't know you were on the line. And yeah. um, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get the story wrong. Actually, why don't I let you tell it? No, that's exactly right. Because my husband is technically our our financial investment guy, I guess, or resource. So he had a call. He had reached out and had a call with an investor who, by the way, is like in his sixties. And I was listening. He didn't know I was on the line. And so very quickly, these guys are very much like get to the punch type people. Mm. He says, tell me about the team. And Bill said, oh, well, you know, our CEO is super seasoned, marketing, branding, has worked in beauty, has done this, that, and the other thing. And the guy literally interrupted him and said, how old is she? And Bill was like 52 at the time, whatever. And he was like, nope, not going to work, too old. 
And I was like horrified. And Bill kind of was stunned too. And the guy basically said, she just doesn't have enough energy to do what it takes. And I'm like, have you met me? Like (laughs) anyone who knows me would say that that's absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, I can do much more. And you probably feel this way too. I can do things so much faster because I can make very fast decisions. And I don't need the time that it might take a younger, you know, entrepreneur to like work through things. So it actually really pissed me off. Yeah, it would piss me off too. It seems really short-sighted. I mean, I can see the, you know, the, the risk and some people might be, but first of all, 52 seems really young to me. I mean, I'm, well, I'm 40 in a couple of weeks, but it's not like it's like 72. And then also, I mean, I watched Elizabeth Warren campaign. So I have definitely seen, you know, an older woman have a lot of energy. And yeah, that seems a horrible stereotype. Yeah. So needless to say, I'm very sort of cynical about investors because there is that bias that a lot of them have. I have met a few recently that actually said the opposite. They were like, we love investing in seasoned entrepreneurs. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's not the Well, norm. as we said before, diversity is the key, right? I mean, I'm sure if you yeah. had a team of, you know, all people who had been in the C-suite, um, that might be one thing. But but if you have some people who are super experienced and some people who are young and have different ideas and different perspective, that's also great. Yeah, totally. So uh, thank you so much for your time. If people want to find out more about you, find out more about Masami, where should they go? Okay, so I'm super easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm on all social pl- ch- channels pretty much at Lynn Powered. And then Masami is lovemasami.com is our website and our social handle on everything is Love Masami Hair. Amazing. As uh, you may know, we have a pretty large listenership. Uh, a bit, you know, big percentage of our listenership is either in Europe or in Australia. And then also, of course, in the States. Do you actually ship to, to internationally or are you just a U.S. brand? We do ship internationally, although, you know, we can't control the custom situation. But we do, we have a few international customers so far. And I'm in conversations with um, a company in Australia to help us distribute there. So hopefully that goes through. Amazing. Amazing. Come back and tell us when it does. Yeah. It's been great to talk with you, Lynn. Thank you so much for your time. You too. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed chatting with Lynn as much as I did. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It really does help put the series in front of more badass women, and a few men too, by increasing how we rank. You should also check out the show notes for more info on Lynn and Masami. And while you're at it, follow us on Insta and all the socials at SoapboxWork. And as always, if you've got a story and you want to tell it like it is, I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch with me over at Soapbox.org.